I think about the fact that we live in a world that is filled with pain and suffering. And sometimes when people are confronted with pain and their hearts are heavy and their bodies are hurting, they lose faith. One of the great dilemmas that the psalmist had in Psalm 73, he couldn't understand how the righteous could suffer and the wicked would seem to have life so well. But he came to understand that there's a reason for that. The Bible tells us that man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We have to understand that when sin entered the world, that one of the consequences to the sinfulness of man, pain and human suffering, sometimes people have questioned, where is God? And why would God do this to me? Well, you have to understand that in this life, most people suffer. Life is filled with suffering and pain and heartache and sorrow. And yet to understand that there is coming a day in which the pains of this life will, as John said in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4, be no more. For these things have passed away. And then there are some that have allowed the various philosophies of life to circumvent their faith. There are a lot of people in our world today that are intellectual giants. In the book of Acts chapter 17, we read of the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens. And Athens was a city of renown. There were a lot of intellectual giants in that city. And the Bible tells us that when Paul entered that city, his spirit was stirred within him. The reason being, the whole city was given over to idolatry, according to Acts 17 at verse 16. Paul had the opportunity to reason with the philosophers of that city. Those that had embraced the teaching of Epicurus. The whole idea behind his teaching that one is to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. All of us today, we enjoy pleasure and satisfaction and contentment in life and we want to minimize pain. But there was this quest for pleasure. And then there were those stoic philosophers. The idea that Life was governed by fate. And whatever happens in life, you just take it, as they say, with a stiff upper lip. Well, Paul had the opportunity to reason with these guys. And in the quest for learning and knowledge, some have begun to question 
their origin. And in that quest for learning about their origin, their faith has become dismantled. There are a lot of schools in our country and around the globe that will teach that we are the products of evolution. That there is no God. That everything is a result of chance or circumstance. Well, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 at verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 26, Moses said that God made us in his image and his likeness. Moses said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We are made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. We have been endowed with the freedom of choice. And thus, as a result of that, we read Genesis chapter 3, the transgression of man, the entrance of sin into the world, and death because of sin, spiritual death, physical death. There are a lot of people today, they wonder about their origin. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 3 at verse 4, Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. There's an argument that is employed. It is the argument from design. And the idea is design demands a designer. You and I, we have been blessed in many, many ways in this life. If you were to examine the human body and the beauty of this piece of machinery, there is absolutely no way that this body can be the product of chance or evolution. Well, why is that? Because design demands a designer. The psalmist said in Psalm 139 that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You look at the human body, the brain, the eyes, the ears. Look at the detail given to the human body. Does that not say something about our design? To think that some would just wave off the origin of man can't be done. I've known people that have lost limbs in the past. Some, unfortunately, have lost an eye. As a result of that, they have received a prosthetic. As good a technology as there is in our world today, a prosthetic limb or eye cannot replace, cannot duplicate what God has made. And then I think about those that misunderstand the purpose of life. You ever thought about how many people in our world today grapple with what their purpose for existence is in this life? In many respects, Solomon grappled with this question. Solomon set out on a quest to try any and everything that life had to offer. 
If you go back and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find out that Solomon literally tried it all. He put life under a microscope. And Solomon was a man that enjoyed immense greatness. He's a very prominent man, famous. Not only was he famous or prominent, but he was powerful. He was the king over the United Kingdom. He succeeded his father David to the throne. And so David had the opportunity to weld great power. He had wisdom. He had all the things that people in our world today will tell you are going to make you happy. But you know what? He wasn't happy, was he? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, after having placed life, placing life under a microscope, he came to this conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. The bottom line is life is, life is about serving God. That's the purpose. We live to bring honor and glory to God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. If there's nothing more to life than what we see with the visible eye, then to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and think about what Paul had to say about the resurrection. Some were denying the resurrection of Christ. Paul validated the resurrection of Christ in that chapter. And basically he said, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink. Why? Because tomorrow we die. How many people in our world today have that mentality? It's all about the here and now. Let me tell you what. It's not just about the here and now. And you can do a lot of things and you can attain a lot of things in this life. You can go a lot of places, but you'll never truly be content and happy in life without God because there is a void, a vacuum in life. And then there are some that misunderstand their destiny. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes the argument, if the dead do not rise, then we might as well eat and drink. And the reason is because tomorrow we die. Let me tell you what. The Bible says that those of us who belong to the Lord, that we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. I want you to think about this for a minute. When you come to the end of the road here on planet earth, and at some point in time, unless Jesus comes first, you'll come to the end of the road here. If this life is all there is, nothing more. How sad. How gloomy. How bleak the future. And yet there are folks in our world today, they have the mentality that after life there's nothing. I read about a famous person not long ago or a while back. And he said, I can see how Christianity could provide some sense of comfort. You know, if you're living as if this is all there is to life, there's nothing more to life. It's a pretty futile existence, isn't it? And think about the hope that we have. When we stand at the side of an open grave 
and we're burying somebody that we have loved from the depths of our heart. I think about the words of Jesus when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How this body, this physical body will be resurrected from the grave. And you take away the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. There is no hope. And yet because of that resurrection, we today have hope. There's a second thing I want to call attention to in our study today. And that is, there is hope for your faults. In Psalm 51, there is a statement made by David. And David, of course, the great king of Israel. And he succeeded a man by the name of Saul. David was a man after God's own heart. And yet in Psalm 51, at verse 3, David said, against you. And you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness. David was a great man. Did a lot of great things. As I mentioned, as I mentioned a moment ago, David was a man after God's own heart. And yet David succumbed to the pressures of life, the pressures of temptation. And you can go back and read the account in 2 Samuel of where David took another man's wife, engaged in an adulterous relationship with her, and then in an effort to conceal what had occurred between him and Bathsheba, he had her husband killed on the front line of battle. And so, if you ever want to talk to somebody or probe the life of somebody who understood the magnitude of sin. You need to look at the life of David. This guy understood what it meant to sin against God. And we talk about the pain of sin. And I think sometimes people have the idea that if they sin, if they somehow get themselves, as we would say, knee deep, in a life of sin, there's no hope. I would freely grant that sin devastates and debilitates. Sin can be utterly devastating in the lives of people. Look at David. David brought a lot of pain and suffering upon himself because of what he did. You know, Solomon said in Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. When we choose to live a life out of harmony with the will of God, what happens is we bring upon ourselves a lot of problems, a lot of heartaches, a lot of sorrows. And David is just one of many that have reaped the consequences of sowing bad seed. Here's what Paul said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he said, Those who sow to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Hosea, in chapter 8, verse 12 of his book, talked about the children of Israel. 
And he said, they have sown to the wind, and he said, they'll reap the whirlwind. Look at the life of David. Here's a guy that reaped the whirlwind of some grave mistakes. What I want you to understand is that there is a prescription for sin. It's the blood of Christ. Think about this for a minute. Look at the scriptures. Here's what the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. John said in 1 John chapter 5, or rather chapter 3, at verse 4, that sin is the transgression of the law. There are many, many people that have come to the conclusion because of what they've done or where they've been or what they've said, the lifestyle they've chosen, that there's no hope. Somehow they have bought into this idea that God would kick them to the curb. Let me tell you what. God is in the saving business. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was chided by the religious leaders of his day because he was eating in the household of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. And they wanted to know, why does your master, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said in the long ago, those who are whole have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus came to help sick people. People sick with sin. Here's what you need to understand. God wants you to be His child. If you've never obeyed the gospel, God wants you to be His child. How do I know that? Because Jesus said He came to seek and save the lost. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul said God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus went to the cross, suffered, bled, and died for sinners. He died for you. Paul said that Christ loved him. And he said, he gave himself for me in Galatians 2.20. He would also tell Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Jesus came to save people lost in sin. So yes, God wants you to be his child, but there's also something else you need to see. If you are one of his children and you have gone far away, you've gone out into that land of sin that we read about in Luke 15, the prodigal son, who went out into that far country and wasted his substance with riotous living. Here's what you need to understand. God wants you back as his child. Now I know that we live in a world when sometimes because of our actions, people will turn their backs on us. And yes, there are folks in our world today that are very unforgiving. And there are some people in our world today, if you mess up, if you do this or do that, they will literally kick you to the curb. Let me tell you what. Here's something you need to think about. If you're a child of God and you've gone out into that far country and you are playing the life of a prodigal, God will take you back. 
And I mean that. He will take you back. Some of us know what it means to live the life of a prodigal. We've been there. And we've been out in that distant land. And we have sown a lot of wild oats. We've done a lot of bad things. And we've said a lot of things we shouldn't have said. We've been places we had no business being. We've done things we had no business doing. But to know that God, in His grace and mercy, will take us back. There are some folks that, unfortunately, have had major marital problems. I've known folks. I've known folks that have been married and unfortunately one mate steps outside that marriage bond, engages in a sexual relationship with another person. Sometimes when all is said and done, that innocent party because of a lack of trust in other things, says, I can't take you back. I love you, I forgive you, but I can't take you back because I don't trust you. And they have that right based on Matthew 19. Sometimes, however, they take that mate back. The Bible talks about how we have been married to Christ, Romans 7, verse 4. And yes, we can commit... Spiritual adultery, James 4, 4. You adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Here's what you need to understand. God will take you back. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've said. God will take you back. The prodigal son, the Bible says he came to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? This will I do, I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. You know what? That fellow went home. And the Bible says that when the father saw him a great way off, he ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. He said, this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. God will take you back. You can enjoy forgiveness. Thirdly, very quickly, we talk about hope. There is hope, not just for your faith and your faults, but there is hope for your fears. Again, going back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus asked the disciples on one occasion, Why are you fearful? We live in a world of anxiety and worry and doubt. Sometimes we need to address our anxieties. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus asked this question. I want you to think about it for a minute. Why do you worry? Some here today, some of you here today are chronic worriers. Your lives are filled with anxiety. There are some folks, they're always looking for something. To worry about. Well, Jesus asked the question, why do you worry? 
Three times in that context, Jesus said, do not worry. Did he know what he was talking about? I think he did. So what's the antidote for anxiety? If my life is filled with worry and anxiety, if my life is filled with fear, what's the antidote? What's the antidote? Two things. Number one, we have to learn to trust in the Lord. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3. Solomon said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. Do you trust God? I mean, do you really trust God? Do you believe in an omnipotent God, that is, an all-powerful God, an omniscient God, an all-knowing God? If your answer is yes, you've got to learn to trust Him. And then secondly, you've got to learn to turn it over to the Lord. Think about that for a minute. Whatever your anxieties, whatever your problems, whatever your fears... Whatever you're facing in this life, you've got to learn to turn it over to the Lord. He can handle it. Listen, to, listen if you would, to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. Casting all your care, all your care, not just some of your care, not a little of your care, but Peter said casting all your care on Him. And why is that? For He cares for you. When you turn things over to God, when you put your faith and trust in Him and you say, you know what, I can't handle this alone. I'm putting it in God's hands. You're putting it in the hands of somebody who has the ability and the power to help you. He can get you through. The Hebrew writer said, let us therefore draw boldly into the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look. All of us have times in life when we can't handle what's going on. There are times in life when we're filled with fear and anxiety and worry. It seems as if life is coming apart at the seams. What do we need to do? Number one, trust. Trust the Lord. Number two, turn it over to the Lord. Sometimes that's easier said than done. But that's what the Lord wants us to do. Now, let me ask this question. If you turn it over to him, do you have any assurance that he'll help you? Listen to Paul in Philippians 4. He said, And nothing be anxious but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then he said, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I think about the Lord standing guard over my heart. The Lord can give you the peace that no one else can. So I want to say to you today, there's hope for you. I know we live in a world in which the bottom line, there's just not a lot of hope out there. But there's hope in the Lord. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ? Here's what they did on Pentecost Day. Peter said, repent, be baptized to every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Some 3,000 people did that according to verse 41. And the Bible says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Acts 2.47. Then if you'll live faithfully, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. 
Now, what about if you're here today and your life is off track? You know your life's off track. You've been wanting to get it back on track for a long, long time, but you just haven't done it. Maybe you have, in your heart of hearts, come to the conclusion, you know what, there's just no, no hope for me. Maybe there's hope for other people, but not for me. Let me tell you what, there's hope for you. Here's what the Bible says. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will take you back. He wants you back as we stand and sing.